listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Today we have a, a special guest. He's he's a younger guest and he's accomplished quite a bit. At just 25 years old, he is a principal with Rand Partners. He's been involved in six different multifamily transactions, totaling 700 units that come out to uh, about $50 million in assets. So he's he's got a lot going on, a ton of experience in, in his few years on, on the earth. So we're really excited to have him on. So Dylan Marmo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sterling. It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me on the show. So Dylan, can you just kick it off and, and you know tell us your story? Where'd you come from and how'd you get where, where you are? Sure. So right now I'm sitting here in Tennessee and it's pouring rain out. But where I initially came from was upstate New York, about an hour and a half north of New York City in the Kipsey area. I grew up there, pretty traditional path growing up. Uh, I ended up going to school in upstate New York at SUNY Albany. Spent two years there before making a tough decision to leave school in pursuit of entrepreneurship. And after a lot of trial and error and a lot of reading and studying what's out there, I eventually became fascinated with the world of real estate. I saw it as being a proven path, a proven vehicle to go out there and achieve some level of success and be able to exercise my entrepreneurial muscles, if you will. And I eventually moved out to San Diego. And that was not in pursuit of it being a great real estate market. It was in pursuit of creating a lifestyle by design. So I was living by the beach and I eventually ended up working for a real estate investment education company out in San Diego. Spent about three years out there, learned a tremendous amount. I got to see people from all different walks of life when it comes to real estate, residential, commercial, retail, multifamily, you name it. Got to see everything between the fix and flips to the buy and holds and so on. And after getting exposed to a lot of real estate, I realized that my initial goal of being someone that was going to be in single family, I purchased my first single family, I purchased a duplex, and I was considering the prospect of fixing and flipping and and going down that whole path because I think that's what I was initially exposed to. But after learning about the other avenues of real estate, I saw that multifamily and the vehicle of syndication were two things that when combined could really create an amazing business that can create an awesome life and help a lot of people at the same time. So I became really enamored with the whole subject, studied constantly. I hit a certain point where I started studying all the time for a little bit over a year before I initially left my job. Left my job with a little bit of money saved up and a little bit of cash flow coming from my single family and duplex and moved out to Atlanta because I figured I'm young. I don't have the experience. I don't have all the money, right? No matter how, unless you have millions of dollars sitting in your bank account, you feel like you never have enough money in this business, right? So I figured I don't, I don't have a tremendous amount of cash I'm sitting on. I don't have a ton of experience and I don't have boots in the ground. What kind of value am I bringing to anybody? So after I hit that point, I went out to take really a big leap of faith and moving out to Atlanta. So this is my second leap across the country. And at that point, I got out there and started to get beat down and rejection after rejection after rejection. I started to meet up groups, started to do a lot of networking and build some great relationships. Eventually, I closed my first deal, 21 units. And uh, then, you know, I was fortunate to you know have good mentorship along the way. I had a lot of people that had helped me out a whole lot and learned the whole process of syndication and how it all works. And I linked up with the, the group here with Rand Partners after you know a, a meeting with Jake up at his house, came to visit one day. And at that point, Jake, Gino, and, and our partner Mike had been growing the business up to about 900 units or so. And I got to a point where I could bring in 
the ability to work with outside investors, source outside capital, help expand into additional markets, and just bring on additional bandwidth. So we just saw there being a fit, and I saw a clear way I could add value to the company. And after a conversation, we basically just sat down and wrote it all out, sketched up what the vision would look like. And it's actually pretty insane looking back at how much of the vision has came to fruition in the last two years in terms of the deals that we've purchased, having a local office, start, we started a mortgage brokerage, I've done a lot of really, really cool stuff. And it's just been an awesome experience, awesome ride up to this point. So, and you know, of course, I moved up here to Knoxville, Tennessee, where we are based out of today, because that is where headquarters are. And that's where the majority of the portfolio sits. Awesome. Well, that that's a lot to unpack. I have plenty of questions. And let me just start off by saying I, I've I've interviewed Gino before and I've been to the mm-hmm. Wheelbarrow Profits training before and and y'all have got a really great group up there. Y'all are doing all kind of really cool stuff. So I'm always excited to talk Appreciate to somebody that's a member of that team. So going back to the beginning, what was it that that encouraged you or inspired you to drop out of school and go pursue entrepreneurship? So a little bit of naivety and ambition <laughs> combined, right? I think at the time when I was young, I was hungry, wanted to make something out of myself and I didn't see the big picture. I think I was for a long time going to school with the idea and the intention of going into accounting and spending five to 10 years rising the ranks and getting the CPA and, and growing in that space before transitioning into some form of entrepreneurship. I remember a very specific moment where I woke up one morning with just this sense of clarity of where I wanted to go with my life and realized that I really wanted to be living with purpose and intention and and trying to build something of my own. And I picked up a book my dad had actually given me at one point and didn't give me a ton of books. This was just one that was sitting on my shelf for a long time. It was by James Altucher, if you're familiar, big entrepreneur, and he's a big promoter of this whole concept of being able to create your own life and, and deciding how you're going to go out there and build it. It's called Choose Yourself, the book. And I remember a specific moment where you know I was sitting there reading that book and I decided, what if I were to make the leap to San Diego? What if I were to give real estate a try or, or entrepreneurship a try and, and try to create something you know that that you know was going to work for me, right? Build a machine that that could produce for me and and help me align my own vision with the, how I want to live my life. So. I think it was in that moment that I decided to go for it. And, you know, at the time, I think you never really, you don't really think about all the challenges and things that are going to get in your way. Because I'm sure if you did, you'd probably be too scared to do it. Right? <laughs> but, but at that time, I just thought it was a good idea and picked up and went for it and definitely, you know, learned a lot. And, you know, in retrospect, I, I think it was, it was a, a risky move. But at the time, I mean, when you're young, you have the ability to take risks like that. So I was fortunate. Sure. So you mentioned that you left school to be an entrepreneur and then you just had your sights set on real estate. Was that something that happened simultaneously or did you really dive into the entrepreneurship thing first and then start seeking it out? And how did you get appointed <laughs> at real estate? Yeah. So started with a handful of things. I, I could go through the list, but you know, anything from flea market businesses, selling cologne. We, we were doing uh, at one point, we had a hangover patch, a patch that you put on and, and would help you prevent <laughs> So, so I, I just had some other friends that you know were like-minded and we were just we were trying to do what it took, right? And we were we were out there just just seeing what, what opportunities would arise. I think the biggest thing through that kind of trial and error 
process. I mean, it's good to go through that too, and just kind of get yourself in the mindset of it's okay to fail and and you know to, to try new things. And you know, we also did a lot of sales. I got into sales for LED light bulbs, and and like I said about you know selling real estate investing education, and you know, learning sales was helpful. The personal growth stuff that I was diving into at the time was helpful. And then a lot of that started to, you know, turn more into more specialized education on real estate and more specialized education on finance. And that's where I spent probably a lot of the time nowadays. But I think it was a sort of a trial and error process that, that eventually got me towards real estate. So when you bought, you said you started with a single family house and a duplex. Where, where did you buy that? That was in Iowa and Illinois. Those were in the Quad Cities area. Those were just really just turnkey cash flow properties. Um, I was out in San Diego, so I was actively hunting out there, but there was very little there. So plus I was working six days a week. So I just bought some turnkey that was going to produce a decent cash flow. Cool. So next you said you, we know you moved to San Diego for the lifestyle because who doesn't want to live in San Diego, but how you said you moved to Atlanta to pursue your multifamily. How did you pick Atlanta? Why did you go to Atlanta to take the next step. So a, a big mentor of mine throughout the time when I was taking the leap from San Diego to somewhere in the Southeast or knowing that I wanted to be boots on the ground was Vinny Chopra. Vinny's done several hundred million in real estate. He's done, I think over 20, I think he's done 28 or so syndications at this point. He's just built an awesome business in a little bit over a decade of time. So he was a big inspiration and, and he had a few deals out in Atlanta and was actually growing there. And I saw the potential that Atlanta had in terms of just the overall job growth and just seeing where things were moving. And I moved out and it was it was just a very competitive time in the market, right? And it's a very competitive market, still is. Sure. And you know, at that point I at least was able to build a, a big network there. I never ended up doing a deal in Atlanta after all of that. But you know, I, I definitely made the most of the the time there. I was only there for about six months or so. So something else that that I notice keeps coming up in your stories is these mentorships with Vinny. And then I know, you know, you've gotten involved with Jake and Gino. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about about how these mentorship relationships evolved? Uh, You know, how you found them? Did you pay for them? What are you getting Mm -hmm. out of them? Yeah. So that's a really good question. I have had a good handful of different mentors that I've worked with over the last few years. And I like to say you either have to seek to serve or pay to play <laughs> in a sense, right? Where you're either seeking to serve by adding value or you're just paying to get in front of them and pick their brain. And sometimes it could be a combination of the two of those. But I am a huge advocate for that because I think, especially if you're in real estate, we're not creating a new technology idea that no one's ever performed before. We're doing a very proven, following a very proven blueprint that's been done time and time again. Sure, some innovation comes in, right? Sure, some creativeness helps you be a better business person, but there's a lot of this stuff that can be learned. And if you plug in with the right mentors, I think it goes a very, very long way. So for me, I've had you know, a few of the biggest mentors. I had a few people that I've paid to sit down and grab lunch with yes, up, up to north of $5,000 in some cases to be able to sit down with someone just to be able to pick their brain and be able to learn how they operate in their business, how they operate in their personal life, what makes them a successful entrepreneur. And in my case, those you know, even those brief conversations can be extremely beneficial. And in some cases, in the case with Vinny or with the guys I work with now, it was, it was also a lot of you know, just thinking about how can I add value? And my biggest tip, because I've had a lot of people in, in similar positions reaching out and saying, hey, how do you 
how do you find a way to network or you know add value to people, right? And I think the biggest mistake that people make when they're trying to build relationships is they try to ask the question, hey, how can I help you? Or how can I add value to you, right? And sometimes it's more work for the other person to have to think about a way to add value. It's like I say sometimes, right? There's times where people want to do an internship for us and it's actually sometimes there's more work that's going to go into the training someone over over two or three months than you're going to have reciprocated, right? Because if they don't have an existing skill set in place, you're going to spend a lot of time pouring into them and then they're going to move on, right? So when you're, when you're trying to add value, try to make it as easy as possible. Try to already have the, the vision spelled out and try to paint the picture for them and show them how you can add value, right? So, in di- and that could be all different ways, right? If you're an internet marketer and you're trying to get into real estate, use that as your skill set. Say, hey, I know you're in real estate, your marketing sucks, right? <laughs> but <laughs> I could help you with your marketing. And in return, I'd love to learn more about real estate. Maybe, or maybe we can partner on some deals together, right? Whatever it might be, right? We just got off a call a few hours ago with a very high level, extremely talented internet marketer with a huge reach. And he's trying to teach us, spend an hour teaching us because we're going to be working with him as a partner on some future opportunities, right? And there's all kinds of ways that you can add value. If you're in accounting, maybe you can help with the books, right? Or, or you know, some of the asset management processes, right? If you come from investment banking. We've had a guy recently who's from investment banking and he was helping us create a new a new document, a new tool that's going to help us more easily track, you know, our, our markets that we're targeting through like a weighted decision making process, right? So think to yourself and really think long and hard about what are the ways that I truly can add value. What are the skill sets I possess? If you don't have any, then you should probably go find some, but I, I would think that everyone has something, right? I, I think it's actually a lie. If you, if you think you don't have any, I think everyone does. Are you a people person? Are you good with numbers? Are you, you know, what, what have you done for your past sure. career? Unless you've been hiding under a rock for your whole life, I'm sure you're going to have some, some ways you can add value. And, and when you can actually clearly paint that picture and present it to someone, I think it will change your life to help other people that are in power or, or succeeding, even regardless of what's going to come in return, just, just help and see where it leads. I think it opens up some really awesome doors. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about that jump from the single family space over to multifamily and your first deal and kind of how you got it, how you were involved in it and what it looked like? Sure. So for me, single family was was pretty relatively hands off just because I didn't spend a ton of time there. And, you know, I, I just was working them from remote for the most part, right, is managing the manager. But you know, as, as far as multifamily goes, my first deal was 21 units. It was in Troy, New York. They say life goes in circles and it was right back next to, right across the river from where I went to college. And it was a 21 unit. I ended up doing that with uh, one of my best friends from college and some other, we brought in a few other partners and we each put in 20% of the capital on a you know, $1.4 million building. And from there we close on it and it's done a little bit over 10% year over year. It's a nice old building. It's not going to be, I don't expect it to be a crazy appreciation play or an absolute grand slam, but it's been a nice, we'll call it a single or maybe call it a double because it's been some pretty good cash flow so far and no major hiccups. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a great start. It was, it was, we were used third-party management. My friend now runs a contracting business too. So we've had him, do some of the work hands and be hands on, and I mean, I, I think it was a perfect size deal for us to get you know our, our skin in the game and start to get the reps in and get from there with what it's like to close and and do the asset management. 
Awesome. So you mentioned it wasn't a grand slam. Do you have a grand slam you can share with us? Some other project you've worked on since? Sure. So after that, the first syndication that we've done is one that I'm anticipating to be a grand slam. It's never done until it's you know finally sold. I guess in some cases you could say that, but I'd say it's it's pretty close to being one at this point. But we got into uh, 132 units up in Louisville, Kentucky, and that was at the end of 2018 or the fall of 2018. And we closed on the deal and we were in at a just price we felt very comfortable with. And it was actually a lower cap rate just because it wasn't a deal that you can really buy on cap rate. It was definitely a deal that you know had, had a lot of upside because it was about $200 below market rents. They had very little other income and just a lot of clear signs of it being a mom and pop. You know, had a couple that, a uh, super nice couple that had inherited the property and just was burnt out from managing it, just wanted to cash out and have a nice retirement. And, you know, we were able to, we didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time negotiating. We gave them the price they needed to, to be able to get to where they wanted to retire. There was no hardballing or anything like that needed to, to take place, but we moved quickly. We, we gave one day on the LOI and, Put it under contract, and since then we went with I think there was you know five thirty or so average rents, and now we're we're across the seven hundred threshold, and it's been relatively light in terms of our overall capital as far as the capital that we're putting into the property. But we've done a lot to manage it well. We've painted the exteriors, we put in new flooring. So while we've been doing it on somewhat of a budget, we've we've done a very good job of making it what we consider to be a safe, clean, and affordable, not in the context of section or anything like that, but safe, clean, relatively affordable, you know, workforce housing space. And we've actually gotten great feedback from the residents living there too. So even though rents have went up and all that, it's not like we're just getting complaints. They're seeing that we're genuinely adding value to the property. So I think that that one was a, a showcase of of what's possible for a deal. And, and now hopefully we're going to be yeah, we'll, we'll see where we go with it, right? Whether it's a refire or sale in the next year or so, but should be should be a pretty nice full cycle deal. Awesome. So, what was the purchase price, and then how much money did you have to raise up front to to execute the purchase? It was a six million dollar purchase, and we raised two point eight million. It was sixty five percent loan to value, just because. It was, we're going in at a, like I said, a low cap rate. You're going to be a little bit DCR constrained. And we went in with agency just because we feel more comfortable with agency, especially at that point, there was a lot of uncertainty about where rates were going and whatnot. So we wanted to make sure we lock something in for the long term. We got a 10-year loan on it with Freddie SBL. And right out the gates, we were able to start you know, paying out 8% quarter over quarter and continue to do so today as far as hitting the investor preferred return. And we've invested, I think, close to three hundred thousand in back into the property in terms of our upgrades and and so on. So, if you don't mind sharing, how, how do you structure those deals for when it comes to the the investors? You have a preferred return. Do you have what type of split do you have in addition to that? What does that look like? So I try to stay away from that because it, it, it is kind of a fluid thing, right? And can always adopt. But I'll say what we've done in the past and say, you know, maybe it, maybe it will stay the same in the future. But what we've done in the past is an 8% preferred return and we'll do a 70-30 split in place. So the it basically through and through, the investors get their first 8%, the sponsor catches up and then everything split 70-30, which you know, results in, in a nice profit share and, and the cash flows will count as a you know, dividend back to the investor and refi and sale will count as the return of the initial capital. So if you refi, you return all the initial capital and you keep it or do do your limited partners stay in the deal after the refi? 
No, we keep them in the deal. Nothing changes. They stay in for 70% of the ownership. Okay, cool. So that, that sounds like a, like a great deal. Um, do you have one maybe that, that didn't go so well? Do you have any examples of, of maybe something that didn't go off as planned? Not yet. I think there's one deal that's in North Knox that we've done recently, well, a little bit over a year ago, that I don't want to say it didn't go as planned because it's going to end up being very successful, but it was uh, it was a heavy lift and it, it definitely has taken longer than we initially anticipated just because we had to go into this property and there was all kinds of different drug addicts and you name it, right? It was, they were, they were in there and there was just a lot of trying to re-tenant the property. And uh, we thought it was going to be a little bit quicker and easier than it initially was, but nonetheless, we've pulled through. We initially thought we'd be done by 12 months and here we are 18 months in and, you know, we were still going through it, but that's just how it goes sometimes uh, with repositions. And that's one that we did not bring investors into just because we, it was a smaller deal as some of it was seller finance. And, and also we just knew it was going to be a, you know, we weren't going to be taking cash flow throughout the holding period. So it was, it was a more opportunistic place. So, but through and through, we should pull out of this in the next six months and be in, in good position. Now, are you guys managing all your own properties now with RAND property management? Correct. Yep. Well, I'm just curious, what does RAND stand for? So RAND is, as in Anne Rand, if you've read any of the books, the, the Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged, she's an author and just great books. Jake was a big fan of, of Atlas Shrugged, still is, and a lot of the initial entity names were, were structured around that and that's how RAND came about. And I, actually, it was funny because Fountainhead was a, a big read for me and definitely one that helped me I guess inspire me to, to take a leap of faith and, and leave my job at one point to pursue real estate. So it's just funny how it all goes full circle. Awesome. So what advice do you have for, for somebody who's looking to get started? Maybe somebody who's in your position in college, not knowing if that's the path they want to go down or somebody who's stuck in their W2 job and, and itching to, you know, try the other side. What advice do you have for anybody getting started? You know, just be be self-aware, know who you are, know what your strengths are. For most people in college, I would say finish up school. I would say don't be naive and just just jump and and take a leap on it. Yeah, you know, I've had a tendency to take pretty large bets on myself and I've been fortunate that I am happy with the position I'm in today, but I would I would really just encourage everyone to be self-aware and be aware of what your strengths are, what the, the best position for you and be patient in terms of, you know, waiting for the right time for you to go out there and, and you know, take any uh, leaps of faith that you need to into your own business. I, I, I don't know. I, I think for me, it's just, it's all about making calculated decisions. Is there anything you would have done differently looking back? I, I probably would have, but I don't know where I would be, right? So you can't really live in that world. All's, all's well that ends well. That's right. <laughs> so I guess what's next for you, Dylan? So next for me, I think, is really just going to be continued to grow the multifamily, the, the acquisition side as we are. We've also been ramping up the loan brokerage, ran capital a bit. So we've ran partners as the investment firm, ran capital as our loan brokerage. So it's been exciting to watch that start to catch some good traction. And we are looking at just seeing how we can help our investors get into deals long term, just like we are out to do, right? We, we really believe in, in long-term investing. I think multifamily as a, as a whole right now, there's a lot of eyes on it. People have a big appetite for it. And 
I think the one area that it really trumps a lot of other investments out there is in the long-term confidence. And when I say when I say that, I say that because if you look at, say, the retail sector, right, maybe it's perceived as more risky right now. There's blood on the streets there. People are finding opportunities right now, and there's great yields if you're able to do it smart, right? But maybe your long-term confidence isn't going to be there quite as much, right? If you get into whatever your your target is, right? Say, yeah, say it is a it's a target superstore in there, right? Are you going to bet on that? being there 30 years from now? Maybe not, right? Are you Think about car companies today. Would you bet on most major car companies being here 30 or 50 years from now? Probably not, right? Because there's so many shifts going on in technology and the world around us. And one of the few things I think we can really have certainty in is that there's going to be apartments here 30, 50 years from now, right? And the stuff that's getting built today is still going to be in demand at that point. So, I say that because we started off as long-term hold investors. We've done a few deals now where we have in, we anticipate to, to sell them because that was our initial expectation set for the investors. But we're really looking around at where the market is today and really thinking to ourselves, how can we create a win-win to where investors are in the deal with us long-term and we get to reap the benefits of appreciation for the next 30 to 50 years? Because the wealthiest people, the most successful people you'll meet in real estate are the people that have held their real estate for a very, very long time. There's so many people that have spent 30 plus years in the business. And one of the biggest regrets you hear from them all the time is that they sold, right? So we don't want to be in that position later on in life. We really want to look at how can we find the right investors that are patient, that are similar minded in terms of having a long view and working with them to, to create an awesome business together. So what, Asset class, I mean, what, what class are you, I guess, asset class would be multifamily, but what, what class apartments are you looking for and what markets are you looking at? I really like to say I just take a 360 degree approach, right, when it comes to looking at deals. So we, you know, we just backed out. We had a deal recently that we were looking at that was built in the last two years. And you know, we will look at stuff that is newer as long as there's some upside or some yield on it. A lot of the stuff traditionally we've done has been the 70s and 80s product, but the cap rates are coming down on the older stuff, which makes it relatively competitive with a lot of the newer stuff as well. So I don't want to say we're going after all new or all old. We're just trying to find where the value is and and follow that and make sure that we're in what we consider quality assets in quality locations that we would bet on for the next 10, 20 years. That's the biggest thing for us. As far as markets go, we're, we're heavy in the Southeast. That's really the only place that we plan on expanding into. So currently we're in Tennessee and Kentucky, but we have eyes on Carolinas, uh, certain parts of Georgia, Alabama, Florida, most of the Southeast. And we, over the next decade, we have intentions to, to grow throughout the Southeast. Awesome. So is there any like deal breakers up front, anything that, that would mm-hmm. just right away get you out of a property? Low income areas are big. I think if we see a low track median income area, just not, it's just not our play, right? We self-manage. We know what we're good at. We know what we don't want to deal with. We don't do HUD contracts. We don't do anything that's more than a certain percentage of, say, Section 8. Just because it's very paperwork intensive, it's just a different strategy. Some people make it their bread and butter and they do great with it, but it's just not really for us. We don't do student housing. We want enough scale to always support on-site management, at least two people full-time. So one full-time community manager, one full-time maintenance. What size property would justify those two people? 
depends on the income. I've seen 50 units that justify two people and I've seen 120 units that don't, right? So it just depends on where you are and what the NOI is on the property to see what the numbers look like. If it's a, if it's going to be smaller, it's got to be really high income and it's got to probably be a newer built property. And then if it's an older vintage or if it's in more of like a tertiary market and lower income property, it's got to have a certain number of units. So I think if you're looking at C-class, you probably need 120. If you're looking at A-class, you probably want at least 60, 65. Okay, cool. So any other advice for our listeners before we go into the radio round? Just persistence. It's not easy. We've went a long time now without doing a deal. It's been probably coming up over five months and we've looked at hundreds and they say that insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. But in this business, that's not the case. You have to do the same thing again and again and expect different results. And it's, I think Winston Churchill, the, the, you have to be just as enthusiastic on door number thousand as you are on door number one. And that's the name of the game. Yeah. I think he said, I think he said success is going from failure to failure without lack of enthusiasm. That's right. Yep. I, I, I love the, me- I love the message of persistence. I, I had this thought earlier today. I, I just found out yesterday I have to buy three new roofs this week, which <laughs> sucks, but you know, I, the thought that came into my mind was get, and I'm, 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 I might not buy the roofs. I might just go to a different insurance company, but get good at rejection. You know, there's always another bank. There's always another seller. There's always another buyer. There's always another insurance company. Get really good at, at how you react to rejection. I think that's what really works so many people out of this business and, and a lot of businesses, a lot of sales jobs. Totally. People internalize that rejection and it just demotivates them from going forward. So I definitely love the, the message on persistence. So, yeah, our, our radio round, we just have three quick questions to you know, help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. First one is, what's your favorite real estate book? Favorite real estate book, of course, outside of Wheelbarrow Profits by Jake and Gino. <laughs> um, Got to give them a plug. <laughs> that, that's a given. Outside of that, I would say... One that has definitely helped me a lot in my venture was initially gifted to me from a really successful developer out of Brooklyn. It was the real estate finance. It was Opportunities and Risks by Peter Linneman. It's a big textbook, but great read if you want to really get in the weeds. I love getting in the weeds. That's what stimulates me. That's what gets me excited is learning. So for anyone that operates similarly or wants to get a lot of nuts and bolts behind the history of real estate markets over the last 50 years or so and and how to really strategically think about growing your business, that's a great one. Awesome. I'll definitely have to check it out. What is your favorite quote? I'm going to go with better done than perfect. In this business, there's so many moving pieces all the time. And I, lately, I've been putting a focus on myself of trying to eliminate the word perfect from my vocabulary because I think naturally a lot of us can all be perfectionists. And the reality is you have to live with things that aren't perfect. You have to try to get things to where they're great and accept them as they are and make sure that you know, you're, you're managing your time effectively. Absolutely. I think so many people get bogged down with the analysis paralysis where they want to, you know, find the, they keep passing on deals because they're looking for the absolute perfect one that, you know, rather than just taking the action. Totally. It could, and that could roll over into anything, a perfect business card. You spend a whole day on a business <laughs> card, right? And it's just, it's just a waste of time at that point, right? So just, just accept things as, as they're great and roll with it and realize that 
it's an iterative process, right? Every every single thing that we do, we're going to do again and again, and it'll be refined over time. Funny, funny comment on that topic. So I don't listen to my podcast after I record them anymore. I just send them to my editor and he publishes them. I tried to record the intro to this podcast and listen back to it. I, I shit you not 50 times in a row. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I want, once it's done, I just want to, I, I want to have it out there and, and yeah, accept it as it is. There's no, there's no going back and redoing it. Right. <laughs> awesome. So what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Outside of work, I, I'd say as far as habits go, I'm huge into reading. Reading is one of my favorite things. Like I said, I really just enjoy learning in every way possible. So that's what I spend most of my time doing. Outside of that, I'd say for habits, it's meditating. And then on the weekends, just spending time with friends. I like to get outside and go hiking. Anything, anything outdoors, I think, uh, just helps me reset on the weekends. Awesome. So Dylan, I really enjoyed having you on today. I think we all learned a ton and we definitely look forward to, to keeping up with you in the future. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can find out more about you, how they can get in touch with you? Sure. You can email me, Dylan, D-Y-L-A-N at Rand, C-R-E, as in commercialrealestate.com. I'm also available on most of the social media platforms. So feel free to reach out however is best fit. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining and we look forward to hearing more from you. Cool. Thanks so much, Sterling. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or Sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>